with me again to the book of Ecclesiastes, today in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. I had a question today from one of our regulars, and those of you who are visiting are probably also wondering, when are we going to get to some Christmas sermons? Uh, the answer is next week. Uh, we are going to break uh, for two weeks, beginning next week, for a few Advent sermons, uh, but today we are continuing uh, for those of you who are new to us or visiting with us, we've been through a, uh, going through a series through uh, Solomon's book of Ecclesiastes, and today we are in chapter 8, looking at verses 1 through 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. I want to give you a heads up uh, that we're going to spend the majority of our time today looking at verses 1 to 4. That's not an apology uh, but it is an announcement so that 30 minutes from now when I announce our second point, no one's tempted to lose heart. It, it, it's not going to last all day, at least I hope it won't. Um, but Ecclesiastes today, chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, uh, and this really is a text dealing with how we navigate political realities. The reality in Israel's day was that of a king, and our political situation looks different, but there's much that we can take here and apply with God's wisdom and the grace of his Holy Spirit to our own situation. So we're going to read today Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, but before we do that, please join me again. Let's pray and seek the Lord's blessing on our study together today. O oh, gracious, righteous, and glorious Lord, you are the sovereign king above all kings. We've already sung of uh, the king who came, that we worship and adore you. We thank you for this Advent season, for the reminder that Christ Jesus is that great David's greater son, uh, the king above all kings and the Lord of his church. Help us today, O oh Lord, to be humbled and to be submissive before you, and to take this as your word, that we might see how you call us to live in the world, but above all, how you call us to serve you as your people. Help us to rejoice in this and to see Christ our Savior, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command, because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit, power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed, while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he bless our reading and our study together today. Well, I wonder uh, if any of you have a political hero. 
I know there are enough history buffs in our congregation, those that love to read of such things and study such things, that you probably have uh, your favorite figures in mind. And so maybe you are one of those Americans, strangely enough, uh, who loves to read and study about Winston Churchill. Uh, you love the idea of a strong-spined man who is able to call a nation to action in their hour of need. Maybe your hero is somebody closer to home, somebody like Nathaniel Prentice Banks. He was the 25th governor of Massachusetts. He served three consecutive terms, though at the time a term was only a year, uh, and he left at the end of his time in office in 1861 uh, to take a position with the Army as commander of the Fifth Corps of the Union Army as the Civil War was just beginning. And again, maybe your political hero is the anti-politician. Uh, maybe you love those stories of the Elijahs and the John Baptists thundering uh, God's judgment against the Ahabs and the Herods of the world. There's no shortage when you look through the pages of history of examples to, to emulate uh, those who, who handled politics wisely or those who handled politicians wisely. But among all of the statesmen, among all of the monarchs that we are tempted to idolize, they all typically have one thing in common. They're all people of action. Our political heroes know how to get things done. They're the conquerors. They're the leaders. They are the framers of new nations. And that is why no one has ever told you that their political hero is Calvin Coolidge. Long before there was a do-nothing Congress, Silent Cal, that was his nickname, Silent Cal made it his political ambition to be a do-nothing president. It was part of his platform. Uh, he assumed the office in 1923 after the sudden death of Warren Harding, and in his inaugural address, he asserted that the country had achieved a state of contentment seldom before seen. So what do you do with that? Well, he pledged to maintain the status quo. Uh, Thomas Bailey remarked that when Coolidge was in office, the nation wanted nothing done, and he done it. <laughs> I like that. Another biographer wrote that after moving into the White House, Coolidge put a rocking chair on the porch and sat there in the evening smoking cigars. He did less work and he made fewer decisions than just about any other president. So naturally, when Coolidge ran for re-election on his own ticket, he won by a landslide. <laughs> it was an unconventional approach. He was the president who did everything in his power not to exercise his power, and yet it worked for Calvin Coolidge. That fits uh, a little bit. Uh, run with me here. That, that fits in what we're reading uh, today because uh, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon seems to offer us unconventional wisdom. We look at all the unpredictable realities of the world and Solomon is always telling us uh, what we didn't expect at first. He's told us so far, if you remember, that sorrow actually is better than laughter. He's told us that Wealth can't really satisfy you. He's told us that even wisdom alone isn't enough to make you wise. Well, then, how does Solomon say we should approach politics? Well, heads up, his, his approach to politics is much more like Coolidge than it is like Churchill. Not because he wants us to be inactive, but because Solomon wants us to realize that there is a power above earthly powers. He wants us to realize that our first responsibility is to serve the king who created us. 
Well, today our passage is about wisdom in an ever-changing political climate. Solomon wants us to know how to deal with authority. And once we've managed that, he wants us to know how to handle the future. Those are our two points today. How to deal with authority and then how to handle the future. Solomon begins uh, with authority. Now, it's worth mentioning, as you look at verse 1, uh, it's worth mentioning at the beginning that Solomon, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is not a political pessimist, as some of us are tempted to be. That seems to be the prevailing climate, uh, the way of political discourse, public discourse in our age. You can turn on any channel, from CNN to Fox News, every point in between. And the pundits make their entire careers out of shouting down those on the other side. If you're good at complaining about every direction that our country is facing or, or going in, you can get a job in one of these channels as well. There is an air of pessimism about what's happening, but not Solomon. Verse 1, who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. The hardness of his face is changed. At first, it sounds like a pretty general statement to the value of wisdom. Wisdom's a rare thing. Who is like the wise? Well, not many. Not many have, uh, have the wherewithal. Uh, not many have the discernment to know where the Lord is leading the nations. But for those few who walk in wisdom, it makes a wonderful change. The hardness pessimism and the stern, curmudgeonly approach to life loses its grip. Wisdom makes your face shine, friend. It seems like a general statement, but actually there's a connection to political realities in this. Uh, it's really a transitional verse between chapters 7 and 8. The connectional verse is in this rare language of interpretation. That doesn't show up very often in the Old Testament, and it should push us to remember those two great interpreters of the Hebrew people. Joseph and Daniel, themselves wise and unique men among their people. They were wise among young men. They were those who, uh, who were given the gift of heavenly insight. Each of them interpreted dreams for foreign kings and foretold what was about to come so that wise decisions could be made. Now, Ecclesiastes has already told us that wisdom like that is beyond the grasp of the great most of us. Right? We have eternity written in our hearts, but we can't even tell what's going to happen next Tuesday. We don't, we don't have this prophetic knowledge that Daniel and Joseph seem to have. Yet, verse 1 seems to hold out the hope that even without prophetic knowledge, those who are shaped by wisdom will be released from the vice grip of political pessimism. Why? Well, because we know better. Because even if we don't know what the future holds, even if we don't know what, what unjust laws or, or unsavory judgments might come, even if we can't predict the next five administrations and which side of the political spectrum they'll fall on, we can know that there is a God who orders all things. He's a power above all earthly powers. Solomon's already told us that the day of adversity and the day of prosperity, he has created. They're in his hands, and all that he does is good. Because of that, we can be at peace. We can deal with human authority, not out of fear, not out of anxiety, but through an earthly obedience with a heavenly perspective. 
That's the message of verses 1 to 4 in a nutshell, that, that God's people deal with authority through earthly obedience with a heavenly perspective. Verse 2, I say keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. That's a pretty straightforward imperative. God's people must obey their earthly rulers. Convenient for Solomon himself being a king, but this isn't just Solomon's idea. Right? Peter tells us in the New Testament, 1 Peter 2.13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Jesus teaches us to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. It is the universal principle from the Old Testament to the New. How do God's people deal with earthly authority? They begin with obedience. And that means that you may not like the tax rate that your local select board has decided to place on the value of your home for the next year. You may not appreciate, young people, that you have to wait until you're 21 to drink alcohol. It means that, that you might not agree with that local ordinance that says in some towns you have to wear a face mask in public places. None of those things changes uh, the basic approach that Christians have to governmental authority. God's people are supposed to obey earthly rulers. Now we need to do some cultural translation here. Uh, these words were written before constitutions in Magna Carta. When these words were written, when Solomon put this down, uh, there wasn't a basic sense that the king was under the law, but rather that the king's word was the law. So verse 4 tells us the word of the king is supreme, who may say to him, what are you doing? Well, translation for us, by God's grace, that's not where we live. We have opportunities to change things. If you don't like the laws that are being passed, you can write to your senator. If you don't like who's in office, you can vote for somebody else. Worst comes the worst, you can run for office yourself if you think you can do a better job. We have incredible opportunities to be a part of the political process. But all those opportunities do not eliminate the obligation to obey the earthly authorities that God himself has established. And that brings us to that heavenly perspective. Solomon says to keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, if you have the ESV, you notice there are two footnotes on that verse. The one in the second half uh, let you know that the language here might be a little bit ambiguous. There's not much there. It's pretty sparse. Uh, literally, the Hebrew text reads, keep the king's command because of the oath of God. What oath? Uh, it's not entirely clear whether we're talking here about a promise God makes to the king or about a promise the people make to God about the king. But either way, the argument is really same at, uh, at the foundation. The, the idea is that for God's people, civil obedience is a theological issue. Israel, of course, there the kings were kings by divine promise. God swore to David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would never lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. We know, of course, that that promise to David has been fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the king of kings who sits on David's throne, and especially through his death and resurrection. All authority and power and dominion has been given over to him. But it's now through that authority and power and dominion given to the Son that God establishes every earthly ruler under the Son. 
That's the point that Paul makes in Romans 13. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Now, Ecclesiastes 8.2 is making a similar point. There are rulers. There are authorities who hold sway on earth under the sun. And wise believers obey earthly rulers. Not just for the sake of the earthly rulers, but they obey earthly rulers as an act of devotion and service to the Lord our God, who is our rightful king. Now that ought to affect the way that we uh, submit to our earthly rulers, and it ought to affect it in a few specific ways. First, it means we should refuse to dishonor the rulers that God has given us. Look at verse 3. It says, Be not hasty to go from his presence. Uh, That doesn't make sense in our context, but uh, Solomon is most likely aiming this warning at political advisors who stand in the king's presence, who have an, an audience with the sovereign of the land, and they might be tempted to be upset if the king doesn't take their advice. And so you've seen a toddler furrow their brow and stomp their feet and turn and leave in a huff And he's warning these political advisors, don't do the toddler thing with the king. Right? If he doesn't listen to your advice, just say, okay, all right, that's fine. It would be exceedingly unwise to do otherwise. It would be terribly dishonoring in the Eastern world. Now, translate to our culture, and that's, again, not where we live. We have the protections of the First Amendment, and we can huff and puff all we want. We live in a culture that's not so concerned about honor and dishonor. But it means that we can be too quickly tempted to speak or act in ways that bring sinful dishonor to the leaders God has established. I don't have to repeat for you the things that are chanted about our national leaders in stadiums all across the country. I don't have to play for you the audio clips of the late night talk shows It could be as simple as the jokes that we make in closed company. It could be as simple as as the emails that we send to one another. It could be as simple as uh, the way that we spit out the last name of our civil officials without the honor of their title. Just throw it out there like we're trying to project our disdain in as few syllables possible. And so we call him Biden. Or we call him Trump. It just rolls off the tongue. And everybody knows what you think by the way that you say it. And these things ought not to be. We don't have to approve of every policy that our government enacts. But we ought to see our obedience to earthly authorities as one of the ways that we honor our God. And we can expand this, by the way. It's not just about civil authorities, but about authorities that God gives us in all the different spheres of life. Children. How do you honor your parents in the way that you engage with them, in the way that you speak about them, even when you don't like what they're telling you to do? How do you honor the authorities that God has given you? Employees, how do you uphold your boss's integrity when everybody around the water cooler is piling on the insults? Wives, how do you speak about your husbands in public or in private? 
How do you uphold the honor of his position as the head of your household? Church members, how do you speak about the elders who shepherd your souls? We should refuse to dishonor the rulers that God has given us. It's one of the ways that we obey with a heavenly perspective. But it also means that we should refuse to engage in any evil endeavor, even if that means disobedience to our civil authority. Verse 3 again. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. Now, in some of your translations, you might see the language of evil downgraded to something less sinister like bad. Uh, The NIV says, do not stand up for a bad cause. If you understand it that way, it's probably just pretty practical political advice, right? Uh, Once you give your advice, if the king doesn't like it, don't press it too far because you're not going to get anywhere. Uh, But I think the ESV's got it right. I think we ought to understand evil in verse 3 in the classic biblical sense, the idea that it's something that the Lord has forbidden for his people. Don't forget that especially in Israel, the God-appointed, the God-anointed king was not only to be a political ruler, but a religious ruler. He was supposed to be the one who led the people in the ways of righteousness that God had given them. He was meant to be one who, uh, who was God's steward, his servant, to be judge and jury, even executioner for those who refused to bow the knee to God's standards for holiness could borrow a phrase again from Paul, Romans 13. He is the avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. It's the way it's supposed to work. Anybody with half a pulse can tell you that's not the way it always happens in the world. Right? In North Korea, owning a Bible is punishable by death. And worshiping Jesus and teaching the gospel to your children can land you and your family in a work camp. And while that happens, all the political power of the DPRK will stand by and salute it happening. Because it's legal there. So what do we do when earthly authorities do not uphold what God says is right? What does wisdom look like when human authorities pass unfair, unjust, unrighteous laws that thumb their nose at God's standards of holiness? Well, verse 3 still applies. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. Don't obey a lesser authority when there is an obvious conflict, and here I mean an obvious conflict with the ultimate authority. The apostles show us the way to handle this in Acts chapter 5. They stood before the Sanhedrin, the legitimate authority of the Jewish people at the time, and they were commanded never to preach this message of Christ and him crucified again. Acts 5.29, Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. And sometimes, only sometimes, we have to be prepared to say the same. Now the, the topic of Christian civil disobedience is way beyond the scope of a single sermon, a single passage, and probably beyond the scope of this passage. But but the basic calculus for deciding when to copy the apostles comes down to whether a law merely makes sin possible or whether it makes sin mandatory. What's the difference? Well, in America, we have laws that make abortion available and acceptable. In China... Well, it's recently being lifted, not completely. In China, for three and a half decades, the one-child policy made abortions mandatory. 
often late in the third trimester. In America, the legal definition of a marriage has expanded. It includes any two adults of any kind. In fact, last year, Somerville, Massachusetts, became the first town in our nation to legally recognize what they're calling polyamorous domestic partnerships. But in Finland, a Lutheran pastor and a member of parliament are currently facing charges for hate speech because of a pamphlet they published defending the Christian view of marriage. So here's the difference. There are some laws that make sin possible, and we ought to praise the Lord that when it's needed, we have the opportunity to oppose those laws while still obeying our leaders with a clear conscience. There are other laws that make sin mandatory, and with those we must not comply. We must serve the Lord rather than men. We must not take our stand in an evil cause. Now here's how Solomon tells us to deal with authority under the sun. We should be people who walk in the wisdom of obedience. We should be people who obey with a heavenly perspective. Now point two, that's a pretty good estimation actually. Point two, once we understand how to deal with authority, we are ready to know how to handle the future. Now when I say handling the future or uh, dealing with what comes next, some of you might be recognizing a pattern. And back in chapter 6, verse 12, Solomon introduced a question that we've been coming back to. It, it sets up much of the second half of the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon asked, For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? He's dealing with the problem of an unpredictable future. What are we to do? What are we to think? And in some ways, this is now the third week that we're dealing with the same issue. Back in the beginning of chapter 7, we were asking the question, wrestling with the issue of how to deal with an unsure future that sits in the hands of a sovereign God. In the second half of chapter 7, we were dealing with the question of how to wrestle with a future uh, that is tainted and full of our own sin and unrighteousness. Now, here in chapter 8, we're wrestling with how to deal with a future that's affected by the sins of the sinners around us. Especially how do we deal with that when uh, the decisions that some of those other sinners make can affect our lives in very profound ways. And so we come to verse 5, and verse 5 seems to be answering the unspoken question that is asked by everyone who's ever been under the authority of anyone else. The question is, what will happen to me if I just obey what I'm being told? Will I get what I want? Will I receive what I need? Will I be taken care of if I just obey? Now, the local building inspector says you've got to have a permit for that renovation. You've got to get it surveyed, you've got to get it inspected, you've got to get it approved by a structural engineer, but you know, you've got a buddy who does this sort of thing all the time. And if you have to jump through all of their hoops, it's going to add 30% to the budget, it's going to add three months to the calendar. And who has time for that sort of obedience? Or the teenager thinks that they're ready to date. They found that special someone. Now is the time. They're mature enough to make their own relationship decisions, but their parents say, not now. They say, not him. They say, not yet. And there's a question. 
The question is, if, if I just obey, what happens? What if I miss what I think is best? Or there's a couple in the church, and they're at their wit's end. And so they meet with the elders to discuss it. And it, it's not adulterous. It's not abusive. It's just constant conflict all the time. Irreconcilable differences, that's what it's called on that checkbox on the divorce application. And it could be just that simple and tick the box and you're done and you're free. But the elders say you've made vows and you've got to keep working and you've got to reconcile. And there's that question in the back of their minds, what if I never get what I want? Where will I be if I let some other authority make the call for me? So verse 5 tells us, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. The wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. It's not a promise, it's at least a general pattern that those who obey God's appointed authorities will walk in the way of wisdom. They will be spared the hurt of much of the heartache of this world. They will avoid the guilt of disobedience. They'll be free from the foolishness of thinking that scheming and conniving to get our own way is the best way forward. That's the point of verse 8. Three statements that we're almost forced to agree with so that the fourth one hits us harder. Verse 8, no man has power to retain the spirits. Of course not. Man has power over the day of death, certainly. There's no discharge from war. I agree. Nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Hold on a minute. I think I've got an idea. I think I've got a way around what the Lord is telling me to do because the Lord tells me to obey, and I'm not sure that's best for me, so maybe I'll do something else. If you want to avoid evil in this life, if you want to avoid days of suffering and regret, the best path is to keep the commands, to walk in the wisdom of the authorities that God has given us. It's not some prosperity gospel. Right? It's, not, it's not some money-back guarantee that things will always go well for you. But it is a reminder of just how practical the wisdom literature of the scriptures is supposed to be. It teaches us how to navigate the world we actually live in. How to deal with the future. And somebody says, wait a minute, is that, is that, is that all it's about? Is it just about being practical? Is it just about making good decisions and playing the game and getting along and navigating through life? Isn't there anything deeper here? Glad you asked. Uh, actually, there is, and pay attention to verse 6. Verse 6 gives us a hint that all this really is about our aligning ourselves with what God is up to in the world. Notice the way that verse 6 reminds us of chapter 3. Verse 6, the wise heart, that's verse 5, the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Verse 6, for there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. There's a time, there's a way for everything. There's a time and a season for every matter under the sun. There are appropriate opportunities that the Lord has fixed and established by his sovereign hand. And yet, where does our anxiety come from? So much of our anxiety revolves around wondering if we're in the wrong place. 
if we're in the wrong time. So much of our angst comes from stressing over whether maybe we're making the wrong decisions. That's the trouble of mankind at the end of the verse. Verse 7 explains it. It's the ever-present problem of the unpredictable future. Man's trouble lies heavy on him. Why? Verse 7, because he doesn't know what's going to be. He doesn't know what's coming next. It's why we want to be in control. It's why we bristle at the idea of being under the authority of anybody else. Because in our sin, we still vainly assume that the only way we can make our lives turn out right is through absolute, unhindered self-determination. That's not the world that God has created. And we're not so wise as we'd like to think that we are. And so the Lord places us under authority. He gives us rulers. He gives us governors. He gives us parents. He gives us church leaders. He gives us a command to honor and obey them in the Lord. And very often he gives us promises, just like the fifth commandment, that when we honor them, it will go well with us. Why? So that we can be practical. No. So that we can learn to honor and, and trust our earthly authorities. Not quite. So that we would learn to trust the God who gives them to us. That's the lesson that our Savior learned and taught us. He came and fulfilled God's law in every way. He walked in the integrity of obedience to his parents. He gave respect to the rulers of his people, even the unrighteous ones. He gave to Caesar what was Caesar's while simultaneously refusing to exchange the traditions of men for the commandments of God. He lived as one Born of a woman, born under the law. What does that mean? Born under authority. As one who obeys the earthly standards that he was born into. And when injustice and oppression came to claim his life, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, that Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. The example was that he committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, there's a greater authority, isn't there? And so when you're tempted to look at the political landscape and feel fearful, when you're tempted to bristle at the authorities that God has placed in your life, when you're worried that you can't have a happy future, if you have to be under someone else's thumb, walk in wisdom. Remember Christ. Handle the future the way that he did. Obey your earthly authorities from a heavenly perspective. Because you can trust the Lord to work out the rest. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your word and your commandments. We thank you for the way that you, you show us ourselves. Often you show us our sin and our failures. But you only ever do it so that you would draw us to Christ and help us to see him. We thank you that he's the one who suffered not just for an example, but for us as our substitute. To pay for all the sin of all of our disobedience, not only uh, here in the world, but to you especially. We thank you for the gift of your Son, the promise of his gospel. Help us to rest in him, and by your Spirit, 
Make us people who are good citizens, not for the sake of our country alone, but for the sake of our witness and for the sake of our souls. We pray in Jesus' name.